Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I'm Graham Davis, the digital editor of Investors Chronicle, standing in for our editor, John Human, who's unwell today, unfortunately. Get better soon, John. Uh, with me in the studio today, I have Harriet Russell, our sectors editor and retail specialist. Hello, Harriet. Hi, Graham. How, How are, you? are you? Yeah, good, good. It's uh, It's been a busy week. It certainly has. And also the other side of the table, we've got Alex Newman, our deputy companies editor and resources specialist. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Graham. Hello. Hi, good to see you both here. Now, it has been, as Harriet just alluded to, one heck of a week. Um, we're in the midst of a reporting season. So uh, we have a deluge of company results in this week's magazine. Uh, the team have been hard at it all week with results, but also at the same time, we've had some pretty interesting um goings on outside of company results. We've had uh, Philip Hammond uh, getting all Tigger-like, introducing his spring statement this week. Rex Tillerson fired by by Twitter, potentially, (laughs) uh, with the Russian spy things rumbling on. The markets themselves haven't really done a great deal. But um, anyway, one thing uh, we have noticed, and we were talking about this earlier on, Harriet, from our company results coverage the last couple of weeks has been a steady stream of profit warnings. And these profit warnings are hammering share prices. We're seeing typically 20 to 25% hits almost immediately. The latest which latest uh, profit warning came just this morning from PZ Cousins. Now, there is one particularly controversial profit warning of the past week, isn't there, Harriet? There is. It's, uh, it's conviviality, which regular readers and particularly digital subscribers will be well aware of the hiccup that happened with that one, which was we did the results for that company. They had interim results at the end of January. Spoke to management. They had a little bit of a margin wobble, but we got some clear assurances from management about the strategy for this year. And we were told that those margins were going to stage a recovery in the second half and sort of explained a lot around why the shares had derated lately and, and gave us some confidence that we might be getting in at an affordable price and you could expect a re-rating on those shares. We weren't the only ones to believe that. Shaw Capital issued a buy note on Conviviality two weeks ago and Questor, the Telegraph's share recommendation service, also issued buy recommendation on them not too long ago too. So we certainly weren't alone. However, we send our tip recommendations for the week live on the website on a Thursday afternoon after market close. And shortly before market close at 3.09pm to be precise, Conviviality issued a profit warning and it was a big one. Um, And they said that the cash profit margin was going to be sustainably sort of weak for the rest of the year. In fact, for the foreseeable future, it was very, very different to what they had told us at the time of the results. And the share price just absolutely collapsed. I mean, when you say that this year's profit warnings have sort of been generating a 20% derating, this was a 60% derating. Ouch. Um, and this is, I mean, timing is is a big issue for us here, but also for this this company because, as you say, only a few weeks earlier, they've been talking to the press, they've been talking to brokers, and spinning or giving a, a pretty positive story that has unravelled very rapidly. I mean, obviously for our readers, the, the the timing issue is particularly acute because we go to press for the print edition on a Wednesday, and between that being printed and appearing in the news agents or on doormats on the Friday morning, there was a massive profit warning. So, Yeah, and it is difficult to necessarily catch these things, particularly if they are issued just before market close, because a lot of people end up missing them. So the share price doesn't necessarily move straight away. And so you're not always sure quite what's going on. And of course, what this threw up at the time was um, sort of two related questions, which was, 
Did management know this all along? And were they trying their best to put a positive spin on what was going to be a rather disastrous year? Or did they not know at all? They hinted in the press release at the time that they were re-evaluating the controls in Conviviality Direct, one of their divisions. And that sort of suggested to me, at least, that management didn't know. Now, I'm not making excuses for anyone because, frankly, either of those two options is pretty appalling. If you're the manager of that business and you don't know that your controls are insufficient, that's pretty poor. And equally, if you're lying to the press and to your brokers, that's even worse. So it really isn't about trying to come up with a defence for them. Needless to say, I don't think I've got a huge history at this magazine of reversing my buy tips within, um, well, about 12 hours. Um, (laughs) But I did. And we took them to sell. And that proved to be a very good choice. Mm. Because yesterday, so that would be Wednesday, (laughs) the group issued another update, which not only sort of confirmed that they were going to have this margin squeeze, but they'd also unearthed a 30 million pound tax bill, which has to be paid by the end of this month, which they have failed to account for. So this is getting worse by the day almost. I mean, what this suggests that management may have really taken their eye off the ball terribly. I mean, what, 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 what's, what's gone on? I know it has been a, a business built on acquisition in recent times uh, and, it, and it has grown rapidly. Have they just lost the management control of this business? Yeah, I think I was saying to you earlier that, um, in my opinion, it's an example of delegation gone wrong. The business had gone through two major acquisitions, Matthew Clark and Bibendum, in the last couple of years. And the integration of those businesses seemed to be going well. But what the integration had prompted was sort of a whole business restructuring where they had sort of siphoned off what they did. So wholesaling or trade or retail into separate divisions. And then recently, Diana Hunter, the chief executive, had appointed managers at each of those businesses to sort of be boot on the ground. And it's indirect that they have unearthed a lot of these problems. So to me, it's an example of putting your faith in local management and local management potentially taking their eye off the ball. A lot of this is supposition because I'm not inside the company, so I just don't know. And we are relying heavily at this point on what they're willing to communicate to the market. Hmm. Interestingly, they have called in PwC, the, uh, the big accounting firm, to help them go over this tax issue that they've got and communicate to HM. MRC and sort of be their go-between. That is not their auditor. The auditor is KPMG. They were the ones to sign off on the interims. But you have to, I think there will be questions asked in the next few weeks around the audit. Um, Interims don't have to be sort of necessarily subject to a massive audit, um, but KPMG did sign off those accounts. And if there was a material error in those accounts, they could be liable for that. Of course, KPMG is no stranger to accounting scandals. Um, It was Tesco's auditor at the time of their big accounting scandal in 2014. So, um, a thirty million pound tax bill is a pretty big miss if that has been missed. The thing is, in auditing, it's all relative, and hopefully, we're going to be writing a bigger mm. feature about this in the not too distant future. But um, as a past auditor myself, I know that you can omit certain missing pieces of the puzzle if they're deemed to be what we call immaterial to the business. So, you come up with a financial calculation at the first sort of meeting to do with the audit and you determine materiality and that will be a financial figure and then you carry out the audit with materiality in mind so for argument's sake if materiality is 50 million pounds which it might well be it's often calculated as a proportion of turnover if you then can't find an invoice for a 30 million pound bill or whatever it might be you let it go because it's immaterial you don't bother to follow it up necessarily because it's not ultimately what 
the auditor is signing off on, the audit statement, is that these accounts, and I can recite this from memory, it's a bit sad really, but these accounts are a true and fair reflection of the company. And in that you have a lot of interpretation, obviously, which is that Basically, there are no material errors. So if I was going to invest in this company, if there's a missing £10 million invoice, that's not going to be the the be-all and end-all of that business. It's not enough to take it down. So my investment decision isn't affected. Mm. Now, it all depends what materiality was necessarily determined for conviviality, either if they did do it at the interims, but most definitely at the last set of four years. And if it's under 30 million, then we can assume they've made a massive error. I mean, so what uh, at this stage, uh, the shares are suspended, so investors can't react uh, any further. As a business, can it come back from this? What, what is the next steps for, for, for conviviality? In my opinion, the only way to come back from it is to have a complete management clear out. That's very often the way that these things work. The problem is that the market has completely lost faith in who is running this business. And this chief executive, Diana Hunter, is relatively new to the business. She hasn't been there too long, a few years. Um, I've always, It's a shame because in my many conversations with her over the years that I've been covering the sector, I've always felt that she did know what she was doing and that she was handling the integration of these two acquisitions marvellously. And, you know, the share price has practically doubled mm. under her tenureship. So you can't can't take that away from her and the sales have absolutely flown since they did those two deals it's completely transformed business um from when i first came to know it which was really just the owner of bargain booze and that was it it's turned itself into a massive wholesaler and distributor at the same time so you know it's always been one of my sort of little gems really Mm. um in terms of a classic growth story but you know maybe this is another example of why growing through acquisition is sometimes a massive risk it's because you you sort of take on this scale that gets out of control very quickly yep Uh, one thing i wanted to point to to bring up was a a, a reader comment that i saw on one of our conviviality stories over the past week which referenced the fact that selling booze on the on the high street is something that we've seen before and we've seen a lot of failures in this business the likes of thresher victoria wine they've all been around and disappeared from the high street i mean i i guess that's why conviviality has expanded into other areas such as wholesale but is there a future for bargain booze basically I think there is. Um, Bargain Booze is a brand that's very much concentrated in the north of England, where the demographics and the shopping trends are very different to the south. Um, certainly in the commuter belt, I wouldn't say that going out and buying booze or at a sort of effectively a glamorised off licence is necessarily the done thing. But I would say the north of England is, is very different to that. The other thing I'd say is that retail is a is an increasingly smaller part of their business. And that was its appeal. It was the whole motivation behind acquiring Matthew Clark, which is a wholesaler, and Bebendum, which is a wine distributor. So, so the strategy looked sensible. Diversification was the way forward to reduce that risk of reliance on high street. But something's, something's gone badly wrong. Yeah, and to me, it, it must lie in the restructuring. Um, they've also been merging themselves onto two ERP systems, which anyone sort of familiar with that sort of undertaking knows that that is a huge job. It's incredibly stressful. And I guess this proves that when you do that, some things fall through the cracks and you have to have very experienced, very communicative managers on a daily basis sort of feeding back to you. And it's a shame because that ERP strategy had really been their talk piece over the last year year or so which was this is what's going to drive so many future efficiencies this is what's going to take a lot of cost out out of our business in the long term and why those margins will eventually recover it's just that at the moment they were having to spend a lot of money to get those systems up and running but in the meantime yeah it seems like they've just (laughs) 
lost a bit of the paperwork. Yeah, um, a letter and, from the taxman fell between the cracks. Yeah, and it's it's pretty shocking. <laughs> hmm. Now, I, I wanted to, while, while you're with us, Harriet, just, just move on to a, another company which you wrote about this week, which had a profit warning a while back, which was pretty damaging at the time. Um, that's the funerals business, Dignity. Um, this week, results came out and uh, shares, I think you said, rose by... 16 or 19 percent on the day what's what's happened there okay well a a potted history is that we um advised selling off the shares last november at a price of 1843 um in january they issued a profit warning and the share price halved in a day it went down 50 percent um it went down to about 958 i think um so yeah that was (laughs) that was a good feeling that day we felt like we'd uh we'd seen that one coming and we were justified and everyone knew that at the time that profit warning did not pertain to the numbers reported this week the numbers reported this week were always expected to be flat the death rate had been flat last year so it's kind of one of those business where it's fairly proportional i mean this is a predictable business one of the most predictable things in life you know is is death and taxes so i mean people die the death rate affects this business to a certain uh, extent. Sorry, Alex. Unless you're conviviality, then it's hard to predict when the tax bill will come, <laughs> I suppose. Yeah, that's true. You don't know when the tax one's going to come around with your conviviality. But so what was, what, what, was, what was behind that profit warning? Well, it, you've basically hit the nail on the head um, by saying that because what the market had really started to do with Dignity was price it like a utility. It was pretty expensive and it was counting on exactly that. Everyone's going to die and everyone's pretty much got to have a funeral plan so we can treat this as basically a business with indeterminable recurring revenue um, and fairly stable. But what they hadn't or what the market we felt had missed at the time was that actually Dignity was starting to get itself locked into a fairly aggressive discounting war. Several other new entrants in the market had started to really advertise themselves as online pure plays and by doing that they could really undercut on price. And this is for the plan, the sort of pre-packed future funeral plans that people will buy yeah so um really to do around simple plans and mm. but also their traditional product and and what they said in january was that they were going to have to take a 25 percent price cut on their simple funeral plan in order to remain competitive and maintain their market share that was basically the basis of our tip we said that this was bound to happen and it did and the market didn't like it at all however this week's numbers what's really changed is that the death rate so far this year has accelerated way beyond what people were expecting the bbc also picked up on it this morning because even the sort of official statisticians are struggling to explain it and so Dignity sort of hinted at the fact that they might be able to make up some of the lost ground. Some of the brokers are still remaining kind of fairly conservative they haven't moved away from the adjustments that they made subsequent to the profit warning in January but we felt that there was a bit more optimism around the business that gave the stock a bit more momentum so it seemed a bit sort of churlish to keep an aggressive sell on it. It's not that I think the market challenges aren't going away but Dignity's made a massive change by taking that pricing slash across its business. It's going to change the prices on its traditional product too. And the argument is that if the conditions around the market, like the death rate, continue to improve, then yeah, maybe this is as bad as it's going to get for the time being. I think in in the profit warning write-up that we did, we suspected that there might be further bad news and that doesn't seem to be the case. Okay, and the valuation is, is, is back to a more of a neutral stance now you said it was it was quite highly valued before the profit warnings well yeah because of its sort of status as a as a hidden utility it was carrying quite a premium and really if you want to sort of assimilate it into the peers in the grocery market who have also suffered from an aggressive discounting environment then you're looking at a p ratio sort of between 13 and 16 and yesterday we found that dignity was trading on 15 times so okay 
And this to is me, a business that, that fairer. This is a business that has always carried a lot of debt as well. So I guess that's a that's a it concern. is massively indebted, yeah. and it still is. But as you say, um, at one point they were in negative shareholder equity, and they're not actually at the moment. So it's not in term in leverage terms, it's not the worst it's ever been. But yeah, I mean, it's still not. I'm I'm not a bull on dignity. Let's let's yeah. make that clear. I guess we just need some time now to see what effect this investment in pricing has on their margin and what effect the market competition has as well. It's going to take some time to... Yeah, absolutely. And, and what remains the case as well is that it always has been and seems to want to continue to be a very acquisitive company. And so I suppose what conviviality should teach us is that if you're continuing to spend and continuing to over leverage, you need to see that return coming in. Otherwise, it's going to be for nothing. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Harriet. Uh, moving on from profit warnings uh, and company results, I wanted to bring in Alex at this point and turn our focus to mining. Alex, this week you wrote a news piece about um, some goings on in the Democratic Republic of Congo. There's, I believe, been a, a debate between the major miners there and the government over changes to taxation. And then the government's just gone out and signed the uh, signed the forms and, and, and got underway. So what what's going on? So the, the DRC, Democratic Republic of the Congo, as, as you said, yeah, there's been this a debate rolling uh, for a couple of years now. There was uh, originally there was in 2002 there was uh, the mining code was signed into law, and we've had uh, speculation for some time now that there were going to be some serious revisions to the code. Just a bit of background: the DRC, uh, as well as being one of the the poorest countries in Africa and one of the poorest countries in the world, is also home to some uh, you know incredible mineral wealth, um, in particular copper cobalt which is used in uh you can probably find it in your mobile phone and which is now thought to be or is 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 highly speculated that it's going to be one of the most sought after metals years ahead because of its role in lithium ion batteries and gold so uh the the debate has been obviously on the mining side is that if you 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 make changes to the rules it uh, can deter inward investment because uh it's it's hard for uh for large mining companies to plan in advance if there's if there's going to be these changes and the feeling i suppose from the executives of these mining companies that this is a, a sort of land grab after the fact after the big investments have been made but, um, but domestically people in the congo would say you've been you've been in, in our country for years and, and yeah. it, they are are our resources yeah you know you should pay the going rate for them is it the going rate or is it pushing it a little well, bit. Well, the going rate for a country's uh, receipt of its its resources is always an open debate and mm. I mean this is this is one of the big risks of in, investing in in the sector because um because it's always subject to change and it's particularly subject to change when the future of certain commodities is so bright as they are for the uh, commodities which uh, the DRC you know has you know in the ground so you can i can entirely understand the rationale on the side of the drc and you know at the same time the glencores and the rangolds uh, who are leading the charge in this protest also have a point as well i suppose uh, not that i you know particularly want to take their side over uh, against the poorest country in the world but they uh, have spent a lot of money rangold uh, in with with anglo anglo gold ashanti have invested something like 2.5 billion dollars in the kabali mine Looks now like the the changes which are being uh, 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 proposed to or have been signed in now will effectively uh, channel all cash flows to the DRC. So that's that's a well, so that's a right. It's a write off, basically. It, it, I mean, it looks like we could be heading towards a write off. There's, I mean, there's still going to be a bit of back and forth. The mining ministers said uh, that there are 
you know, there's a case by case uh, basis um, adjustments can be made. But the fact that we just had a, uh, an announcement today from these these large miners that several of them are pulling out of the uh, the Congolese uh, Chamber of Commerce because they don't re- uh, feel it reflects their 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 interests anymore. Uh, I'm a little bit worried that this this is going to turn out to be a bit of protracted legal battle and you know you've got joseph cabillo who's the president who's who's made this he's a populist um he's clung on to power before he's pretty pretty stubborn yeah it, it, it could turn out to be a, a quite an ugly protracted fight i think mm, sounds like i mean i guess um the, the, there's always a fine line and, and these things have to be struck at that yeah. at that line to make it beneficial for a both parties and in this case it sounds like Rand Gold in particular may well suffer from this because of the investment they've put into that it's a gold mine that one yeah absolutely I actually think Rand Gold um, has I mean a lot of a lot of the hit has already been reflected in the, in the share price I think they're down they're nearly down nearly a fifth this year I think some of that is partly due to the gold price but since the you know this dispute started to unravel they've fallen which is the beginning of uh, February they've, they've fallen by about 14 percent and in in terms of net present value of the Kibali mine, I think a lot of this is now being appears to be being written off by the market. Glencore, on the other hand, uh, it seems to me that the hit could be uh, a lot more elongated and could be potentially more damaging. Glencore wants to be the big trader. It already is the big trader in cobalt. It wants to be the big producer of of cobalt, which uh, you know is going to be you know highly significant uh, politically uh, sensitive uh, metal for the for the coming decades uh, particularly in, in you know in the light of the projections for electric vehicles you know if it's going to be shut out of 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 making money from its from its cobalt mines then this could lead to some pretty serious write downs which we we did flag up in their results in in February and on that point on, on cobalt in particular the Democratic Republic of Congo is is a major global player in in this in this particular commodity. Yeah, more, so more than fifty percent of um, cobalt production uh, comes from the DRC. So it's in quite a strong strong bargaining position. On it, that. it certainly is, and I mean, look, they've not you know they're not been stupid about this. They've they they can see their how strong their hand is really here. Uh, again, it's it, you know it, it's it, it's very very interesting. I mean, where the market is going to find source cobalt from uh, is unclear. Uh, some people have raised the possibility that that this is going to just push uh, in innovation in different areas when it comes to battery metals and nickel. Maybe uh, you know a, maybe a substitute. Um, I was speaking to a, a resources investor a few weeks ago who said, you know, the, the US simply won't allow uh, a country like the Congo to to turn into the next OPEC and uh, dictate the price of you know, but. Uh, I mean, I mean, how do you, how do you stop a country which ha- you know is autonomous and has its uh, say over how its resources are extracted and at what price? Um, yeah, remains to be seen. It's, it's very interesting development, though. I think indeed it is. It is uh, very interesting, and um, but I guess at the moment we're in a standoff situation, so you're going to keep your eye on this one. Yeah, and I, I mean, Rangold, it's such a quality company, and they do have mines uh, in 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 Mali uh, and in the Côte, Côte d'Ivoire. I think there probably is a buying opportunity approaching, but I would want to see the rhetoric potentially to, uh, tone down a little bit. And But it may be, it may be impossible to avoid that because they have, to, they have recourse to arbitration. And they've got a massive mine, which at present appears to be uh, generating no cash for them. So, mm. Thanks, Alex, on, on that one. And uh, actually, you, you've segued nicely with talking about cobalt on, into your feature this week which is fascinating um i just finished reading it this morning future proof miners so this is is 
expanding upon that theme of the, the materials of the future and who owns the means of production of those materials of the future and what uh, are the main drivers behind future demand potentially um really fascinating feature what prompted you to look at this first and just talk us very briefly through the the main drivers of of what could be a in years to come be seen as a quantum shift in the resources market yeah i wanted to sort of talk about two themes in in this piece i mean the if we can briefly and i'm i've I've gone on about this ad nauseum in in the past in the podcast on the podcasts but if if could summarize the last five years of the mining industry and um, particularly you know london is, is probably the most important market for that we had massive massive oversupply in lots of the base metals as china's uh, construction boom appeared to tail off painful share price falls dividends cut close to uh, bank covenants being breached and then we had the rebound rebound we had the sort of china reflation effect uh, commodity prices back up from the very painful lows at the beginning of 2016 and if you've invested your money in in the large mining stocks over the last couple of years well done to you you've done very well and that's made a lot of money for you at the same time there's a huge amount of nerves among the biggest uh, mining majors who are the ones capable of moving the needle significantly when it comes to the supply of large metals so uh, to take it for example uh, of uh, take the example of copper most of the supply uh, currently comes from the mega mega deposits which have been discovered in the past at the moment the big miners are clearly nervous about going back to their old mega spending ways they don't want to be caught short again the the focus all uh, at the moment is currently all on how much can we return to shareholders how good an income stock we can be how sensible we can be and the obviously the byproduct of that is that the longer they delay these uh, new project uh, uh, project sanctions uh, the higher commodity prices are going to rise and the more profitable the operation is going to be um but this, it, it can take years to bring a bring a new yeah. major copper for example a major, major copper um deposit into production absolutely and uh, it's getting more expensive because environment for you know we compare this to the to the past uh, the environmental constraints on uh, project developments are higher it's more costly to explore for these deposits and lots of the deposits have already been ex- discovered and exploited That's you, not- say, you say in your piece there's only one major copper project yet in the production yeah so uh, we've got we've got this uh, mega mega project coming online i think it's uh, first quantum uh, minerals which is a, a canadian company they've, they've got a project in panama uh, which comes on online next year but that's uh, it after that yeah off that that's the that's the last mega mega project that's that's going to come online uh, so there's obviously an opportunity here so that's the first first strand very long-winded way of putting it <laughs> uh, the second strand is there's not going to be another china there's not going to be uh, this uh, massive massive uh, increase in production of of uh, base metals iron ore is not the future so that's bad, you know, bad news in one sense. If you're investing uh, at Rio Tinto or BHP, that also partly explains the hesitancy of those miners to go after some of the big base metal projects. So, what is going to uh, replace those metals? What are the metals and commodities of the future that which uh, investors could be potentially looking at? And that's the other theme that um, that I, I wanted to look at and just pick out a couple of. London listed shares uh, and a couple of Australian listed shares as well, which, which sort of play into that theme, as in what's next. And, uh, you know, so that's always very hard to predict. Indeed. Uh, we've, we've talked about cobalt already. A couple of other commodities here that, uh, forgive me, I've, I, I hadn't heard of before. Ilmenite and scandium. What, where, where are we going with these commodities? 
Ilmenite and Scandium, which you each picked out, which I mentioned the feature. Um, Ilmenite, it's it's uh, you can already get quite good exposure to this in in London. It's mineral sands, and you've got companies like Kenmare Resources, which reported this week. Blue Jay, which is the, this very interesting pro, uh, project uh, they have in Greenland, and also Base Resources. That I mean that uh, uh, the demand for ilmenite and titanium feedstocks, uh, which have lots and lots of applications, it's, it's sort of general industrial applications. The demand for that is just set to grow in line with GDP. So it's not about early cycle economic um, development it's about general population economic growth so the more the more global gdp grows you know two to three percent a year is sort of forecast for the next few years the more the need for, for ilmenite is going to grow scandium it's one we sort of plucked out this is a incredibly thinly supplied metal i think it, we're talking literally in the in the double digit ton level at the moment which is a rare earth metal which is uh, can be added to aluminium alloys greatly improves the uh, a number of the physical properties of aluminium and can reduce the weight of the the car chassis or pl- or planes in the in the case of the aerospace industry so proving efficiency indeed along the way. yeah and all the extra efficiency which comes with that so there is a long-term clamor for for this metal at the moment it's not quite uh, economic to be uh, enough to be feasible but there are a number of projects in new south wales in particular uh, we flagged a, a few of the a few of the stocks which are exposed to that um which could be part of the, uh, one of the next next big or or, or or sought after metals in the next 20 years. Scandium and ilmenite, you say that they're not used in huge amounts at the moment. Is that because there isn't much of this stuff around or is it just because it's just beginning to be used in, in industry? Well, in the case of uh, ilmenite, there's there's a fair amount of it around, but I mean, compared to the base metals, it's, it's, it's not comparable to those industries. Scandium yeah, I mean it's 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 tiny at the moment. I think I think global production at least a couple of years ago is probably something only like twenty t- you know twenty tons. But you know we talk about thousands of thousands and thousands of tons of demand uh, in the future, and you only need a tiny bit of scandium to to get the full uh, full effect of it once once added to uh, uh, aluminium and, and and whatever whatever other uh, combinations that it, it, it might have as an alloy. So so yeah, that's that's the. Those are those are two of the the, the sort of metals or, or minerals of the future which uh, offer some prospects. It's, it sounds to, it sounds to me that these metals you you talk about now do have genuine industrial uses right now. I mean, we, you also mentioned in in your piece briefly you touch upon graphene, which mm. we know is this wonder material which has not yet been commercialised. I mean, is this is that the difference with these the, these these companies that you're talking about here, the likes of Blue Jay? They are producing uh, metals that are required in industry as we speak, and that growth could be exponential in, in demand. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, uh, in the case of graphene, I mean, it's incredibly exciting. I don't know if you'd call it a technology, or a, but but the, the 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 two companies which are listed in London, Haydale and Applied Graphene Materials, you know, they're they're still. They're they're searching for the commercial applications mm. of of graphene, which you know, as uh, you know, which w- often get talked about. You know, this this amazing revolutionary material, which is transparent, super strong, and highly conductive. It likely will have uh, applications one day, but the route to market is less tangible. But that shouldn't prevent investors from potentially looking at these uh, at these companies. But it's just a long, long way off. And then the timing and luck, you know, just becomes much bigger factors when you're when you're looking at these companies really yeah and talking of investors you've picked out um five companies here um i mean is it 
you're, you're suggesting here that these should be to take up a small part of a portfolio at the moment. We're not talking about this is time to switch from bulk metals to emergent metals. This is this is part of a diversified. Approach. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, within within those within the companies we 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 single out, uh, you know, there's there was this company Solgold, and you know, they they they're uh, uh, they're going off the copper and gold. So I mean, the, the you know, neither of which are particularly new, uh, exciting new uh, materials. But the others, Berkeley and Aegea, they're exposed to uranium. They're building a, a, this this very interesting uranium mine in Spain. Um, Bacanora Minerals, which we talked about a lot before, they are they're a lithium miner in, in Mexico and Germany, and Sirius Minerals, which have this uh, potash mine in in North Yorkshire, which I think we've slowly, very slowly turned bullish uh, on this year. So I'm not saying no. This this isn't uh, sell ever, sell your big uh, clunky base metal miners because there's absolutely a role for them, and also they offer uh, shareholder returns, which. If I was going to be investing in this sector, I would want some of that exposure because there's that you know there is enormous volatility from highly prospective uh, junior junior miners which aren't going to see cash flows for year, years ahead. But um, these these are some of the companies which um, uh, UK investors uh, might want to consider if they're looking at the future of, of, of materials and how that might change. Fascinating stuff, Alex. Thank you, and I, I certainly learned a lot from reading this feature myself. Thanks again. Nice. And now we're going to move on briefly to uh, one of the major features of this magazine, which is Simon Thompson updating on his bargain shares portfolios, uh, and not just from the from the last year, from the last several years. Hello, Simon. Hello, Graham. It's, it's been a busy week, to say the least. Fifteen companies covered for bargain shares and a mammoth feature this week. This feature runs to, to seven pages and is, is packed with, with tables as well. And this this, I guess shows us the, 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 the value of, of following your recommendations over the years. No, absolutely. I mean, the thing is that, yes, some of the companies haven't done well, but, I mean, that's the nature of investing. That You know, you can't expect every single company to actually produce the goods. But over the long term, this, this strategy, this Ben Graham-inspired stock-picking strategy has worked an absolute truth. I mean, I'm looking at the 2013 portfolio table, and it's, it's up almost 73% in the last five years. A Futsal share tracker, a Deutsche Bank tracker, is up half that amount. So it's basically done the index and the same again. And, you know, the 2017 portfolio is up, I don't know, 25, 26% or so. The market's only up about 4.5%. And, you know, it's, it's, these aren't isolated examples. Um, it goes back a long, long time. I mean, you know, I could have looked at the 2009, 10, 12 portfolios, and they've done amazingly well. But no, for this feature of basically picked 15 stocks that have all been in the news, all reporting results. And there's some really interesting ones to comment on. Can you highlight one of those for us now, Simon? Um, one of them is BATM Advanced Communications. I had a really interesting call with Dr. Zimaron, the chief executive there. And another reason why this is really interesting at the moment is that the US in the last 30 minutes, this is Thursday this week, has just announced new sanctions on Russia and has accused Russia of having cyber attacks since the US election. Surely not. <laughs> on key infrastructure, <laughs> such as aviation and energy. And why is that interesting for BATM and communications? Well, they've got a cybersecurity and networking division, and they provide the security to government defense departments. They've been winning a host of uh, contracts, one of which is worth $35 million over five years, more recently a $4 million contract. During my conversation with 
Dr. Zuma on the chief executive, he said that a number of governments have been carrying out proof of concept trials and he expects these to lead to firm orders. Well, I would expect after the, um, the headlines in the, the papers that are going to be coming out tomorrow, that quite a few governments are going to be thinking about accelerating those plans. The other thing that I got from this um, conversation with um, the chief executive, which isn't in the release, is that BATM has got this network virtualization technology business. Um, it's got partnerships with a number of telecoms operators and managed service providers. Dr. Maram says he expects significant orders, and we're talking millions of dollars in 2018, because a number of these have been carrying out uh, proof-of-concept trials, and they're actually coming to an end now, and he expects those to convert into firm orders. The other thing, which, again, not in the release, um, they've got this collaboration with NXP Semiconductors and Arm Holdings. Arm Holdings is now owned by Japanese SoftBank, whereby BATM is the only global software vendor to provide network virtualization functionality to ARM architecture and Intel platforms. I expect contracts to come from that this year. Um, I've done a sum of the parts valuation on this, excluding any contracts from that business or any more contracts from the uh, government defense cyber business. And I've come out with a valuation of around about 33 pence a share. The market cap at the moment is roughly £105 million, share price about 25 pence. So I can see about 25 to 30% upside off the share price now. And that is without, However, that is without these, any, any other potential contracts? Oh, yeah. You, you imagine if they do a deal with Arm or one of the big telecom operators in the U.S. and worth millions of dollars, um, you imagine what that's going to do, A, to the share price and B, to sentiment. Hmm. Um, it's cash rich. It's got about £16 million of its market market cap in cash. It's got valuable holdings and property um, stakes in some really, really decent technology, IP, um, yeah, I saw in the parts valuation easily thirty three pence a share, if not a lot more, if these contracts are converted. I mean, it's it's interesting. BATM. I mean, that, this company's been around a long, long time, hasn't it? It has, but I mean, the reason I included it in my two thousand and seventeen bargain share portfolio was I thought that it would move into sustainable profitability, and it hits profitability last year. Cash profits two point two million dollars. I mean, that excludes about $5.5 million worth of gains and property disposals. I'll strip those out. But I can just see that ramping up from this point onwards, given you know the fundamentals behind its cyber business, um, behind you know the technology with, with ARM. And um, it's got other interesting businesses as well. And oh, actually, the other thing I got from the conversation, again, not in the least, is that the company would not rule out selling stakes in some of these businesses uh, to third parties, which basically highlight the underlying value of these um, subsidiaries that it owns. You've just beaten me to my next question, Simon, which is you've mentioned some of the parts a couple of times now, and it sounds like this BATM has lots of different strands to its business. I mean, is there a, a potential breakup value here or even a takeover premium? Not necessarily a takeover premium, but what I can see happening is I mean, they've already sold a 5% stake in a diagnostic business, which, to give you some idea, they sold it for $2.9 million for a 5% stake. And th this company is only worth £105 million as it is. And I haven't even mentioned that diagnostic business. I, I'm being pretty conservative with my figures here. But, you know, I, I can't see it getting taken over, but I can see it selling stakes in these individual subsidiaries, which, for investors, will actually highlight the underlying value in the intellectual property that, it's, um, that it owns. 
So it sounds like it sounds like a great great deal of potential for this company. And also, I mean, I've just you know reading through the rest of your your article. There's another cyber company in there. These are but these are really varied companies, which I think um, illustrates how, how you are a stock picker and how you you find special situations. The other company, Cape Technology, is something worth pointing out there. I had a really long conversation with Ido Alikman, the chief executive. I mean, the stock price is up 60-odd percent in the last 12 months since I included it in the uh, the portfolio. What wasn't mentioned in the release is that, I mean, basically they've got this product called Raymarge, which is patented in Microsoft-based product that cleans up computers. And they're going to launch a new product for Mac users. They're also cross-selling this Raymarge product with um, CyberGhost, which produces VPN, um, safe encrypted data links for your computer. And CyberGhost is going gangbusters. It's just amazing. But but anyway, during this conversation, Mr. Lickman told me that they've been cross-selling to CyberGhost customers, and that this is this year since, you know, the period ends. And nine, out, I quote, nine out of ten have signed up for Raymarge, which is just an absolutely amazing statistic. And he says, even though the broker, the house broker, is going through the forecast and they're looking for 36% profit growth this year compared with 40% last year, but Mr. Lickman, Lickman says that this, this Raymarge subscription model is not actually embedded. The growth that they're seeing is not embedded in those forecasts. So basically, this company could over-deliver. The shares are only rated in 11.5 times forward earnings, net of cash on the balance sheet. It's incredibly cash-generative. It's just going to pay or will be paying a special dividend of 3.5 pence a share. Stock price is about 78 pence, so a dividend yield of about 4, 4.5%. Four um, I wouldn't rule out another special dividend in 2018 as well. Um, it's also, which again, not in the release, is in advance discussions about a major takeover. It's got $17 million cash on its balance sheet. That's about half its market cap. And given CyberGhost acquisition, it only paid $9.5 million for that. And in its first year, it's generated a net profit, not a pre-tax profit, a net profit of $1.5 million. It gives you some idea of how switched on the guys that run this company are. Yeah, it's interesting to hear about these technology companies, which are cash cash rich as well, which is obviously a benefit to shareholders uh, to know that companies have decent cash backing, as well as these exciting prospects. Well, absolutely. Well, it mitigates risk. If you're not taking on financial risk, it's it's one less risk to actually consider when you actually invest in these companies, and if they can generate the type of earnings growth which you know, Cape Technologies and BATM Advanced Communications will be, then. Um, you know, it, it can feed through to some quite sharply rising share prices. And I, I can see decent growth to both of these companies in the next 12 months. Great stuff. Thank you, Simon. And obviously, there's another another 13 companies for readers to feast their eyes upon in your in your feature this week. Thanks a lot, Simon. Good, nice to speak to you. Cheers. Bye. Bye. That's about all we have time for this week. The magazine, as I say, is packed with company results this week. Our other major features, uh, Algae Hall has a strategy stock screen this week. Mr. Bearball's made a couple of changes to his income portfolio. Uh, and also John Rosier, our, our private investor, has updated on his um, private investor diary portfolio and much, much more. Thanks for taking the time to, for listening. Um, you can catch up on the latest news on the website, investorschronicle.co.uk, where you can also find our other podcasts.